Uh, please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 20. That's on page 72 if you're using the church Bible. We're continuing our sort of series within a series looking at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words uh, in Israel's law, which we're going to continue into later in the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments are like the Constitution that the case law applies to specific circumstances. Or to put it another way around, uh, God, the Ten Commandments are like God's owner's manual for human life. They are commands, but they're also instructions that point out to us the way to live. They map out for us the shape of the good life. And words teach us how to love the Lord our God and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. This morning we're going to be looking at the third commandment, which comes in verse 7. But as we've been doing each week during this series, we will read the entire portion, Exodus 21 through 17. Give now your attention to the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. In the late 1970s, a man named David Tran, who was ethnically Chinese but lived in Vietnam, was forced to flee from regime in Vietnam, and for weeks he, along with 3,300 other refugees, were trapped on a freighter ship in Hong Kong Harbor before eventually they were granted by the United States. When he arrived in Los Angeles, Tran had trouble finding work, and he also had trouble finding hot sauce that was any good, and so he started making chili sauce in five-gallon buckets 
and filling used baby food jars by spoon and delivering it to various restaurants around Los Angeles on a bicycle. Well, as his sauce sales grew, he set up a business and he named it Hui Fong, the freighter on which he escaped Vietnam. But a lawyer advised him that it was extremely hard to trademark place names. And so the lawyer, no doubt, could not imagine that this hot sauce was ever going to be a thing, so he said, don't bother trademarking the name of it. As a result, technically, legally, sriracha, the name of trans sauce, is legally a generic term. And so all sorts of businesses, Starbucks, Frito-Lays, Applebee's, Pizza Hut, Subway, Jack in the Box, use the name sriracha without actually licensing it from the company. If you're a hot sauce person, uh, you know one of the things right now is that it's hard to find real sriracha, and there's all kinds of knockoffs in the grocery store. What's ironic is that authentic Hui Fong sriracha doesn't advertise at all. They don't put ads in magazines or on television, Super Bowl, any of that. And yet, all these other companies use the sriracha name to sell their inferior products. In short, the name sriracha has been taken in vain. Okay, we've been saying that the first four commandments are about taking God seriously. Taking God seriously, not being flippant about who our God is or how we worship him. And now in this third commandment, God tells his people, take my name seriously. Use it carefully. Don't trivialize it. Don't turn it into an empty curse, like when people say GD, that sort of thing. Don't make it into a common generic term. Don't use it to sell your own products. To see that this is what God is saying, take my name seriously, we need to see three things. First, God's name is holy. Second, God gives us his name. And so third, don't give God a bad name. First, God's name is holy. God's name is holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be distinct from the everyday and the ordinary. Often in the Bible, a name says something about a character. So Eve is the of all the living. Abraham means father of many. Esau means hairy. Joshua means the Lord saves. Nabal means fool. In each case, their name reflects something of their character. And so it is with God. His name stands for his character, his nature, his being. Although properly we should say God's stand for his character. After all, in the Old Testament, God is called by all sorts of different names that draw attention to different aspects of his character. He is El Elyon, God Most High, El Gibor the mighty God, El Roy, the God who sees El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Chai, the living God. Each of these names reveals a different aspect of God's character. But in the third commandment, God specifically says, you shall not take the name of the Lord with all capitals, his covenant name in vain. And so it is especially God's personal covenant name. I am the Lord, which is holy and to be honored. Uh, for this Exodus series, you'll remember all the way back in Exodus 3, when Moses was at the burning bush, God reveals this name to him, I am the Lord. 
And he cryptically unpacks the meaning of this name for Moses. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Both are equally grammatically possible. That is to say, I am sovereign and free and totally self-consistent. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And you cannot capture what I am in mere human categories. God is being the great I am who gives existence to all things. And yet it's not just an abstract name. It's a promise of God's presence. He says to Moses, when you go to the Pharaoh in Egypt and you declare my word, I am with you. And so God's covenant name itself points us to his holiness. He is the great I am who cannot be contained within mere human categories. God is holy, and so his name, which stands for his character and his nature, is also holy. And so the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we've prayed together this morning, is, Hallowed be thy name. May your name be made holy, set apart, lifted up, distinct. May your name throughout the whole world be known as holy. And indeed, praying this petition is saying, may we Christians live in a manner that brings honor to your name. In line with this, the Heidelberg Catechism says that the third commandment requires that we use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, pray to him, and praise him in everything we do and say. The Westminster Larger Catechism elaborates, by implication, the third commandment teaches us that we should use in a holy and reverent manner God's name, but also his titles, his attributes, his commands, his words, his works. In short, every possible way by which God makes himself known should be used in a reverent and holy manner. About a millennium after God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush, Israel returned to the promised land after exile in Babylon, and in their zeal to be faithful to the Lord God, they quit pronouncing his name out loud. When they read the scriptures and they saw the covenant name used, they would say Adonai, Lord, or they would say Hashem, the name. We don't really know all the details of how this came about, but when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the third century before Christ's birth, every time the divine name was used, they used the word Lord to translate his name. And then both Jesus and the authors of the New Testament follow this practice. When the Old Testament is quoted, they represent the divine name with this word Lord. And so in our pew Bibles, if you still have it open, if you look there in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord in all capital letters, signifying wisely both that the divine name is being used and yet not putting it out uh, to be pronounced out loud. It's treating the Lord's name as holy. That's the first point. The Lord's name is holy. God's name is holy. But that's not all. His holiness doesn't mean he's totally separate from us and unreachable, cold, or distant. The second truth we need to see is that God gives us his name. God gives us his name. Giving someone your name is like an invitation to a personal relationship. And so the holy God, the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth, gives us his name. He invites us to have a personal relationship with him. Imagine going to meet King Charles III, the King of England, and you get to meet him and you refer to him as your majesty and he says, please, 
Call me Chuck. Okay? Being on that kind of first name, intimate basis implies a personal relationship. And that's what the holy God does to us. He says, please, use my first name. Uh, Some of you may remember the Beatles singing, you know my name, look up the number. And in a sense, when you have someone's name, you can get a hold of them. You can find them. You can contact them. Uh, For younger folk that maybe don't remember the Beatles, the better analogy is giving out your cell phone number. Okay? You're saying, you can contact me. And that's what God does. He says, here's my name. Here's my cell phone number. Call me day or night, any time. And God promises in his word that he will always pick up. You know, he's never surfing Instagram, hoping the call will go away so he can get back to his business. He will always answer when you call. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this does raise a question. If God has given his personal name to his people, should Christians then address God by his Hebrew name? Is that what we should call on to be saved? Or should we use Lord like our translations do? And it's a good question. At first glance, using the word Lord instead of uh, uh, his personal name seems like we've gone from a personal name to a title. And if we only ever address God as Lord, that's a real risk. And yet through the work of Jesus Christ, you can address God in even more personal terms than his first name. Jesus teaches his followers, when you pray, when you talk to God, begin like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus says, through my work, if you trust in me, if the Holy Spirit has united you you to me, you actually share my standing to God. The relationship I have of the Son to the Father, you have that same relationship and can address God in the most intimate possible terms. Father. The New Testament uses a variety of images to kind of unpack this astounding truth of being united to Christ. Another one of those images is not of adoption, but of the relationship between Christ and the church being like a groom and a bride that get married. And I suppose the only way an average citizen would ever get to a position where they can call the King of England Chuck is if they married one of his sons and had that kind of personal relationship with him. And that's what the New Testament says. If you're part of the church, you're part of the bride of Christ, and you're brought into the family, you have that kind of intimate, personal relationship with the holy God of all things. God gives us his name to use. He invites us into a personal relationship. But even more astounding than that, God gives us his name by putting it on us, by marking us with his name. In number six, uh, God has Moses instruct the priest to bless the people like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And right after that, it says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. When the priest in the Old Testament declared a blessing, when the minister at the end of a Christian worship service declares the blessing, What's happening is God is once again putting his name on his people. He's marking his people as his own before he sends them out into the world. He's saying, each and every one of you, this one bears my name and so is blessed. As we already heard at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples. Uh, 
baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has put his name upon a person. Do you remember in uh, the movie Toy Story, it's a really big deal when Andy, the young boy, writes his name on the foot of the different toys. It marks them as belonging to him, and it's, a, it's an identity marker for them for the rest of their, I guess toys don't have lives, but it's an identity marker for them that they look at that name and reflect on it, and it establishes who they are. It's a picture of what happens in baptism. God takes his sharpie, as it were, and he writes his name on the souls of his people. He says, this one belongs to me. In a few minutes, when we baptize Asher and Ezra, God is going to be putting his name on these boys. He's claiming them as his own. He's saying, Asher belongs to me. Ezra belongs to me. These are mine. It's a wonderful truth. If you identify as a Christian, if you say, my trust is in Christ and you've never been baptized, I'd encourage you to talk to me. It is a great, uh, it's the sign that God gives us to say publicly, I am claiming this person as my own. But there's a flip side to God putting his name on his people. God then ties his reputation to those who bear his name. In the Bible, God is known as things like Lord, God Almighty. But when he first appears to Moses, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, you can know who I am by the people who bear my name. Later in 2 Kings, he refers to himself as the God of David. And of course, these are very distinct things that happen. God has for all times bound himself by covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's bound himself by covenant to David. And so in one sense, uh, you know, his name is tied to those individuals in a more profound way than almost anyone else in history. But in a lesser sense, every single person who God puts his name on is brought into that covenant relationship through the work of Jesus. And you can then say, he's the God of Nathan. He's the God of John and Emily and Emma. He's the God of put your name in the blank. God gives us his name, but this leads us to a third point. Don't give God a bad name. Don't give God a bad name. And here we're kind of getting to the weight or the, or the main point of the third commandment. Henry Kissinger reportedly said that 90% of politicians give the other 10% a bad name. Uh, and I wonder if people might say the same about Christians. And yet the third commandment, it's not just that you might give other Christians a bad name by your behavior, by your words, by your speech, but that those who bear God's name might give God himself a bad name. This phrase, you shall not take up the name of the Lord your God in vain, literally means don't uh, take up or lift up or carry the name of the Lord to pointless purposes. Don't bear the name of the Lord for empty ends. One particularly relevant context where this happens is in swearing oaths. Someone says, I swear to God what I'm saying is true. They're taking up God's name to try and prove or ensure the truthfulness of their statements. And if you don't take God seriously, you might not think anything of talking in that sort of way. 
You know, if you don't take God seriously, you think he's never going to do anything about this. It doesn't really matter. And yet, what does God warn us in the second part of verse 7? The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That is to say, even if you're not taking God seriously when you use his name, God takes it seriously and is going to hold you accountable. Reflecting on this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And in the larger context there, uh, Jesus is unpacking this. He's saying, make sure your yes is reliable. Live with integrity so that your word is backed by your character, not by oaths. Simply say yes, and the people who know you should trust it. Simply say no, and the people who know you believe it. Jesus' teaching then is saying that more than just formal oaths are at stake. Christians are always marked by God's name. Christians always carry God's name wherever they are, whatever they're doing. And so any hypocrisy or duplicity or double living, in effect, bears God's name in vain. It uses God's name as a cover for our own evil. And so being marked by God's name is a call to live with integrity. Martin Luther says this command condemns any attempt to embellish yourself with God's name or to put up a good front and justify yourself, whether in ordinary worldly affairs or in sublime and difficult matters of faith and doctrine. Having been given God's name, We should live lives that display the transformative power of having a personal relationship with God where we talk to him on a first-name basis. Christians' lives ought to be markedly different because they have been marked by God's own name. So this command means we are not to take up the name, the Lord's name, or sorry, this command means that we are to take up the Lord's name but not to empty or vain ends, but rather were to take up his name to honor it and to hallow it. In fact, uh, this command in essence means we should each live like a missionary. When a missionary goes off to Papua New Guinea or Eastern Europe or wherever they're at, they're known as a Christian bringing the Christian message. And so they always have to be, as it were, sort of on duty. There's no taking time off to go do wicked things because that's going to destroy their witness. But what God is saying in this command is that every single person who bears his name is called to live like a missionary. You are to bear God's name wherever you go, whatever you do, representing him. This means that any way of speaking or living that trivializes and commercializes God's name breaks this commandment. Leviticus 19.12 warns, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. But Proverbs 30 verse 9 says, if I become poor and steal, that would uh, profane the name of the Lord. And Amos 2, 6 to 7 says, when God's people practice both economic injustice and sexual promiscuity, both of those equally profane God's holy name. In short, when God's people live in a way that does not accord with God's commands, that isn't shaped by God's grace, it brings dishonor to God's name. 
because this is the case, uh, you might already be thinking this. The worst offenders against this command then are pastors and other Christian leaders who take up God's name but then seek to enrich themselves or promote their own ends. This looks like all sorts of things. Spiritually abusive pastors in a local church who use God's name to force through their own agenda. The televangelists on TV who use God's name to get rich off the vulnerable. When Christian leaders use God's name to their own ends, the Lord's name is taken in vain. And I think it's fair to wonder if part of the reason that the American church is currently in the situation that it finds itself is because hypocrisy has made God's name common. Not necessarily saying you and I, but when we look at the witness of the church across the country, and especially consider how prominent TV preachers are, I wonder if part of the reason the church has a diminished witness is because God's name is no longer treated as holy. In fact, from the grocery store to the playground, pretty much anywhere you find yourself, the most common way you're likely to hear God's name used is as an obscenity. GD this, GD that, on down the list. Well, when God's name is used as an obscenity like that, it's literally a curse, asking God to damn something. But when we no longer take God seriously, as our larger culture no longer does, we also no longer take our curses seriously. We just think this is a way to express your anger. Say this sort of thing. But here's the irony. God has said he will not hold someone guiltless who takes his name in vain. He's not going to let someone off the hook who utters an empty curse using his name. And yet God, full of grace and love, did not leave things there. Indeed, we should all be damned. And yet what does he do? He sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to become flesh. And literally, Jesus was God damned so that we could be free. He literally takes the curse that we deserve for using God's name in vain, for bearing it to our empty ends. He takes that punishment on himself so that we can have this father relationship with God. We can address him in the most intimate terms possible. That's what God's holy name means. That's the story of God's name, that God the Father gave up his beloved Son. God the Son was damned for our sins. God the Holy Spirit unites us, unites his people to his Son so that they can address God as Father. Through Christ, God, who is holy, gives us his name. And so now we are called to not give God a bad name by the way we live. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above all other names, the only name by which we might be saved. Some here today have never before put their trust in Jesus. Perhaps they use your name in a flippant manner as an obscenity, but I ask by your Holy Spirit, you would be doing the work even now that we have just described. Draw these individuals to Jesus Christ, give them trust in him, 
that they might know you personally and address you as Father. Others of us, Lord, perhaps have been marked by baptism many years ago, and yet we realize that there are parts of our lives that do not bear witness to the name that we bear. Forgive us for our hypocrisy and our duplicity. Give us grace that we might live consistently in a way that is transformed by having been marked by your name. Amen.